and at five is supposed to be simple. A fresh start. Restored connections. This may be my first real moment of normalcy. Taking a piss in private. You hit me in the face with a f***ing bat! Hello, friend. You've got a mail. Hello, friend. I am so happy to be here today with Henry to talk about episode nine of the second season of Mr. Robot. The title is basically called In It Five. I thought this was an amazing episode. I have to just say right out the gate, I really loved it. What about you, Henry? What did you think? I liked the episode, but at the same time, I had this feeling of, of like, I wish this was episode one of season two. Or episode two of season two rather than episode nine. Because a lot of the things that it kind of touches on are things that have been kind of held in suspense. And, you know, it's really like just now kind of getting started in terms of the narrative. I should mention written and directed by Sam Esmael. In it five refers to a kind of a run level in an operating system that basically means a reset or setting everything back to normal. In it five is supposed to be simple. A fresh start. Restored connections. This may be my first real moment of normalcy. Taking a piss in private. The flashback part where they showed how Elliot entered the prison. We got the reveal of who Leon was. We got the reveal of who Ray was in the context of being in federal prison and how he ended up there in the first place. I'm glad it didn't take up the entire episode. I think other series would have made that the entire story i could totally see that happening in the walking dead for example yeah i don't want to give them too much credit for just kind of getting on with the story Mm -hmm. i hear you there were some interesting motifs i thought throughout uh, just in terms of general parts of the story that i thought were interesting an amazing use of silence i noticed watching it pretty closely tonight because you know you and i both just watched it there were times where the actors really waited a beat or two or more to respond to each other. And I thought that was pretty cool. And also the recurrent use of the ominous knock at the door, I thought was pretty cool to see how that was done throughout. And that's how this episode starts. It starts with that ominous knock at the door that ended the end of season one. And it's true. I mean, we're almost through season two and we go back to that very moment. I think you had guessed that this is when Elliot was arrested because Krista's ex-boyfriend reported him for hacking and stealing Flipper. <laughs> Undone by an expensive dog. <laughs> Can you imagine? And some of the musical choices were really great at this point. There was There Ain't No Hymn by Saint Savior. I just thought it sounded good and I shazam that. After we saw Elliot being checked into jail, they played a song from one of my favorite nostalgic bands, Public Image Limited, The Order of Death. So I was so excited to hear a Public Image Limited song. I must say I've seen them a few times perform. And I also, they used the Depeche Mode song walking uh what was it what's the exact title it's something about walking in his footsteps or something i thought that was a a, a well-chosen song as well very menacing baseline super menacing so that's not to take away from all the things that you're saying because there were some things about it that i thought were a little bit late in coming and i think some of the complaints that i've been hearing if they're 
is room to complain because I have to say I love this episode is that uh, that people the audience was a little further ahead in terms of where things were going than than maybe the writers gave them credit for in terms of figuring stuff out on Reddit and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you know the fan base, much like myself, just kind of wants more of the story to happen and to progress because episode one kind of takes us from meeting Elliot to him bringing down, you know, one of the pillars of the, the social order, social and economic order, all within one season. And then to have season two almost be wrapping up and just kind of get around to figuring out what happened to him at the end of season one feels a little bit like a little bit dragged out. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do hear you on that front. There were some really cool things, I thought, at least in terms of the prison part. Uh, like like I mentioned, Ray, we do find out he turned, it turns out he was a warden, which makes sense. He had a counselor vibe to him, but we it makes more sense that he was a warden given the kind of access he had. Leon was really on to Elliot like glue from the beginning and was really pushing himself onto Elliot in a way that we didn't see earlier on. And it was interesting to see how hard Leon was working to ingratiate himself with Elliot. Leon. Okay, that's cool. It's best you learn something because you don't want to be alone in a place like this. Check it out. I'll give you the lowdown. Routine, that's key. It's best you find your routine, whatever it is, stick to it. Mornings, you child. Afternoons, we hit the ball court. Evenings, that's when I get my TV time. Some people join church groups or AA or whatever, but I like to finish personally. And that's how we discover why he had such an obsession with Seinfeld later on, because that was some of the only media that they had access to in the prison. And it made me think that this is actually going to become more and more common, where inmates and uh, people who are unable to access Netflix, for instance, are going to be watching a lot of older media. That's completely true. And what happens to older media when it's no longer accessible on the platforms that seem right now so ubiquitous? What's happened? What happens to that lost media? Maybe it's some of it's lost for the better. But Elliot asks for a notebook. Leon says, I can get you anything you want. I'm open-minded. It really doesn't matter. And all Elliot wants is that notebook for keeping track of his routine and his thoughts. And so that's another merchandising tie-in because they're selling Elliot's journal, right? Yeah. Uh, again, I think we talked about it before, but this idea of those composition books are kind of making a comeback. It's another proof for me. Yeah. I I totally nerded out today. I did. I thought about that conversation we had, and I almost bought some composition notebooks, but I ended up opting for a pack of a hundred vinyl stickers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I I know. I'm getting. I had to get them on, on online, unfortunately. So I can't wait to get them. I totally am nerding out. I love it. So the notebook is next because I need to put the stickers on something. So I have to get the notebook now. That Depeche Mode song was walking in my shoes. And then just as quickly as we get immersed in that world, Elliot's checking out after being in there for a mere 86 days. Time off for good behavior, I guess, right? The Stanford rapist is already out. So, hey, what's a hack? Oh, my God. Can you believe... He is out. I can't even remember his name. I remember the judge's name is Persky. And there, were, there was a lot of controversy around that. And he's no longer judging criminal cases, I guess, because of the 
public outcry. He asked to be transferred. I think he had an upcoming sexual assault case and, you know, anticipating the upcoming firestorm that was going to surely touch upon him if he took that case. He asked to be transferred to the civil division. Yes, that person who was convicted of rape, who was a university student at Stanford, was only supposed to serve three months, and he only served half of that or something? Six months, and I think he served three. Oh, gosh. Anyway, but Darlene, when she meets Elliot, she has a bag for him, and she whispers something in his ear, and I thought that was one of those poignant uses of silence, but not much more to say about the prison, I guess. Did you have anything else that struck you? Well, you know, I think what I'm kind of detecting in terms of a narrative pattern is that the writers use these silences as kind of seeds for future future storylines, right? Because at some point, what she whispers to him is going to become relevant and it's going to be revealed. And so it's this kind of constant process of like setting us up hiding something and then using that tension to fuel further narratives uh, i think it's something that they do quite often they are definitely seeding this and i know they're seeding a lot of easter eggs that it's hard to catch when you first watch it but if you go anywhere like on twitter people are just spending hours digging into a lot of what the different easter eggs mean and there are different kinds so there are certain ones that if you're a hacker or you're a a programmer, you might catch on to some of those. Others have more to do with art or references like that. Angela is up to something. So we finally see her in motion. She is trying to get to this guy, Mr. Green, but makes this person, Monica, supposedly meet her downstairs in this office, all because Angela wants to hack these risk files. Risk ahead, right? So do you think that this was her plan all along? I do, but It's so elaborate to be able to understand what you need to do to have a plan like that, isn't it? I I think that's coming to be more and more of Angela's thing is to kind of do these really ridiculously elaborate plans that don't quite go as she planned. Yeah, I mean, maybe in some ways she's a genius because she's able to, you know, I credit Darlene for being able to think ahead and plan ahead and and initiate plans. If Angela is really pulling this off as seamlessly as she appears, I mean, at the same time, we learn later on, Price has been setting her up to do all of this. So she's probably part pawn at least. Oh, and, you know, Dom says a little bit later in the episode that they've been watching her for a while. So despite all the machinations that she's she's engaged in people are kind of outside of her little spider web looking on with amusement as she kind of does her thing you know it's interesting to see how everybody in the show has slipped we saw darlene left that vhs tape behind mobley used his dj name for his hacker name so everybody lets little bits of themselves slip into this cover right yeah which i don't know if i necessarily like i I'm kind of waiting to see how how it plays out, but it feels to me a little bit to me uh, a little bit constructed. I think. Oh, most definitely. One thing we learn as Angela's going through those files, sitting in front of a risk ahead poster, inspirational poster, which I thought was hysterical, is she not only finds the Washington Township files, but there is a reference to the Flint water contamination. Oh yeah, good good catch. Yeah, uh, evidently evil corpse behind that as well. We should let Michael Moore know. I'm right on it, Henry. Right after this, I'm going to go on Twitter and I'll say, hey, Michael Moore, did you watch Mr. Robot today? 
(laughs) (laughs) One thing I did learn later on in the show, it's related to this, is that the Washington Township plant is owned by White Rose's interests, or White Rose as Mr. Zhang. As of noon this Friday, I'm sorry to say the Washington Township plant will be taken over by the federal government. And you might have thought we were taking a step forward. But here we stand two steps back. Your actions remind me of your predecessor, Philip. And here comes the veiled death threat. (laughs) And it's important to him that it continues to be run by Evil Corp. So to me, it's kind of uh, a sign that something's going on there that he can't afford to let the federal government get involved, right? Because that's what Price is threatening him with, is that the federal government's going to take over management and Evil Corp's not going to be running that place anymore. And that was enough of a threat to get White Rose to back off, and Price felt like that was sufficient leverage. So something about that facility continuing to be out of federal government's hands is important in a really significant way to White Rose. Do you have any theories at this point what that might be? I need to know more about the nature of that facility. Like, what do you know? What do we know about that facility? What do you remember? Not a whole heck of a lot at this point, except they were dealing in dangerous chemicals. Yeah, so maybe it's related to drugs, but there hasn't been, aside from Elliot's drug addiction, a very strong, like, drug trafficking angle uh, to... The story so far so that would be kind of out of left field but at the same time we need some way to explain Terrell and Joanne Joanna and the connection they have to everything so it's aliens <laughs> huh well you know aliens are kind of in the news and on the brain these days right like UFO sightings SETI announcing that they've heard some signs of intergalactic potentially life who knows it it might be an interesting decade i definitely predict in our lifetimes that we will have if if the seti thing turns out to be a false alarm which i'd have to look into i I heard about it i didn't look into it maybe if you know more please share it if this doesn't turn out to be the case i bet in our lifetimes it will be someday yeah well if that's the case i hope they're they're wiser than we are (laughs) let's hope it's not a Battlestar Galactica situation, eh? Yeah, seriously. Seriously. (laughs) One thing I love about Mr. Robot, and this episode had plenty of it, were crazy subway scenes. So we saw Darlene and Elliot on the subway where Elliot is seeming like he's learning about stage two for the first time and what happened with Mobley and Trent and uh, Darlene starting to really freak out. I love how they're always showing... these weirdos on the subway because that is such a New York subway experience. Yeah. And increasingly, unfortunately, a BART San Francisco experience also. Tell me about it. (laughs) Muni stories. That could be a regular podcast in and of itself. Seriously. We also get a little bit of sometimes seeing Elliot's mother who seems like she's incredibly broken, like the clock in her room. So not sure totally what the purpose was for that but there you have it maybe in a way like this is the rebooting right like this kind of grand reveal kind of setting the stage for okay these are the mysteries that have uh come to pass here's the answer to most of them and what remains is the focus 
because this episode really does clear up a lot of things that were left in the dark that people were uh, having all sorts of theories about. I think that's a really nice way to put it. It definitely feels like it's the end of one major chapter and now we are moving into the next phase. And maybe that's why the clock being broken, that's a symbol of time being in the past or or at least with his mom, she's stuck in time. The cemetery scene, I thought it was really interesting and I had a feeling that White Rose was somewhere close to where Philip Price would be in this, even before we saw him later on. The peeing on a grave, you know, that's actually been done before in shows rather recently, House of Cards. Yeah, evidently going to someone's grave and pissing on it is not just a thing for country western songs, it's now something for television. <laughs> yeah, I love how the former CEO of E Corp, this is whose grave White Rose is determined to pee on out of vengeance. And the name of the CEO is Lester Moore. <laughs> <laughs> On the one hand, thought it was awesome how vengeful White Rose was being. She ended up seeming to get played in the end by Philip Price, so who knows? Well, I mean, it's really come down to this, right? Like, at the end of it, Philip Price kind of lays his cards out on the table. Like, gone is the veneer, the sophisticated guy. Like, basically, here he lays it all out and says, I will watch this burn. Like, try me, right? Like, there is no other place for him to go. Like he said, it's World War Three. It's this or World War Three. It's remarkable. I thought the scene between White Rose and Price together in that gray, beautiful woodland sort of background with the black umbrellas, I thought it was a beautiful scene. Yeah. Um, and really, this kind of sets the arc for things, right? Um, as we head into the season finale, like we see the kind of standoffs building between White Rose, Price, Angela, Darlene's safety now that the tape is, you know, we were always wondering how Darlene's uh, safety was going to be used as a narrative lever and how what that was going to look like. And now we know at least it's involved with this tape. So a lot of these things are kind of being set. You know what it reminded me of with the, the thing with Darlene, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I saw in this newspaper today that these people from Canada, these two women went on like a fifteen dollars or $20,000 cruise to all these different fabulous places, maybe Bali. I don't know if that's where they went, but like places like that, Tahiti, posting all over Instagram and Snapchat and all that stuff and Twitter. And it turns out that they smuggled $25 million of cocaine into Australia and got caught. The sloppiness of them trading this trail, so brazen. And I mean, Darlene had a little bit of that kind of brazenness with, you know, with her defiant VHS tape usage, getting sloppy with media. Yeah, I mean, I mean, did they think that there was like a female hangover movie? Like, it's, <laughs> you know, like, did they think that they were like gonna <laughs> snort cocaine and party it hard and take <laughs> pictures and right into Australia like I think sometimes with all this uh, media and especially this really intense ever-present media the lines for reality and fantasy start breaking down mm -hmm. and people really start losing the sense of like what is actually likely to happen and what's improbable or just a sheer fantasy like I hear more and more about people falling off of cliffs and like dying in national parks because they fall over the edge of things. And I, I wonder if some of that is like the selfie thing 
and people just kind of losing awareness of the fact that you actually can fall over the edge and die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even hearing that with people who are playing Pokemon Go, those who are still playing. I mean, I myself, when I was playing, when it first came out, I was almost hit by a car because I was not paying attention. And death by selfie and social media is higher than we think. And it's becoming really intense in South Korea. I saw this article about zombie, what they call cell phone zombies. And <laughs> and people actually hiring minders on the street. Like I, I think some, <laughs> some town or some city or municipality had hired people to like stand on the corners and like look out for people who are otherwise going to kill themselves because they're looking at their phone. And you think about it and it's like, that kind of is the ridiculous end point or extreme, right? Is that we would like walk out of our house, distracted by our phone, have minders to prevent us from killing ourselves. We get into driverless cars. So we continue to look at our phones and not be interrupted. And then we go to work where we spend all day looking at screens and with headphones on not to be interrupted. Like that's kind of the ridiculous extreme, but it's not that far from what's actually going to happen. Oh, it's not that far at all. I'd say that's probably 10 years away, maybe. Yeah. I mean, if we don't really start getting smart about at least trying to be smart about um, heading off unintended consequences, because, you know, like we've seen it a lot in our past where we had lead, we had radioactivity, like times where science and progress has outstripped our ability to detect the unintended consequences and harm. And right now, to me, like a lot of the things that are affecting the mind, media, um, information, uh, and, and, and drugs, it's, I think, changing the way that we interact with each other in our environment in ways that we don't fully understand yet. Yes, I think the extent to which we modify our experiences is pretty extreme and you know, maybe the next scene sort of taps into that a little bit too, because in the midst of Darlene and Cisco arguing, first of all, I can't believe Cisco is still alive. We see that Mr. Robot and Elliot are starting to glitch into one and the same person, uh, or they're sort of a split reality. And um, that's kind of a new transition into a new state of being for the show that we really haven't seen before. So pretty interesting there. Yeah, it's new for the show, but I have to say not new for shows that have used this imaginary character uh, construct. Like, it happened in Fight Club, too, where mm -hmm. the characters started breaking down towards the end, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, the two characters started kind of intermingling. Uh, it's, it's a fairly common, I think, trope. Uh, so I'm glad they didn't stick on it too long, because I think that would have been a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we did talk about White Rose and Price interacting, but there were a few things that we didn't mention that bear mentioning maybe. One is, is that Angela is Price's pet project and she's doing exactly what what he thinks she's going to do and which we discover later is turns in evidence to the to the feds. So and Price needs cash. He's now really looking for some money at zero interest rate. And this is where he says he's a mercenary, but he seems desperate. The first time he seems desperate, I feel to me. Yeah. And I think things are kind of coming to uh, a point for him where it's going to either be his success or downfall. Because I think what he's doing with Angela in some ways is related to his plan to get at White Rose because her going, because he has to know that she's going to 
get information and that she's going to be predictable Angela and turn it over to the feds. So to me, it's a question of think. it's really a, a question of uh, what he has to gain by that happening. And given White Rose's interest, it makes me think that he wants the feds to go after that. Yeah, it seems like it's part of his diabolical plan. So it's the cryptocurrency angle is obviously one aspect of the whole plan. So I like how that's unfolding. And I like how ominous the experience Angela had was having at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with that Ms. Phelps person. She was creepy. Do you think they were going to kill Angela or or torture her or kidnap her what was going on there she she you know i think narrowly missed something bad yeah i don't know that was creepy that kind of made me think about what i would do in similar circumstances and i'm glad she had sense and got out of there you can always come back and fight another day it's not that urgent yeah totally and elliot is making his way to the black to the dark army to get information about the phase two although there's a little bit of a twist there towards the end and we also see that darlene has successfully topped into the dark army's chatter basically while she's watching nancy grace talk about f society so it's all full circle yeah and the thing about elliot and how he was the one who planned it i was a little bit disappointed to see that come up because i thought we had kind of gotten past this whole elliot lying to himself kind of thing um, and I hope they don't really make a habit out of that because, you know, as an audience, I think you can you can take those types of things a few times. But if it becomes a habit, it becomes uh, a little bit gimmicky. Yeah, because it starts to raise questions about, you know, what else are they going to undo? And while that's kind of cool, you have to be careful with how you go about that. The one thing I thought was cool was they were showing what it's like to live in the midst of brownouts. Have you ever been in a brownout or been to a place that has rolling brownouts? There are countries, I've only recently discovered like South Africa, they have rolling brownouts often. Yeah, I was in New York when they had the big uh, blackout uh, right after 9-11, 2000, I think, two, the summer of 2002. Um, And so that was a really interesting experience where I was working at Rockefeller Center at the law firm and the lights flickered and went out and they had desktop uh, computers there. And so all these attorneys started screaming because they lost their work when the power went out. And we had to walk down 47 flights of stairs and you get out onto the street and it was chaos. And the taxi drivers, like you see how quickly they, they jack up the prices. Like just in an instant, it was like $100 just to go across the river, right? And so it was like all these people out on the street, everybody was uh, trying to figure out what was going on because some people thought it was a terrorist attack because this huge blackout. And people were trying to use their cell phones, but no one could get through. I found out that you could use uh, SMS uh, messages to communicate. Hmm. So I started using that. And I coordinated with my friends to get some beers, go to the rooftop of our place in the East Village, and we drank beers and had a really great Thursday night. It was only when it got into Saturday and we started running out of food. <laughs> and we had been out air conditioning for like three yeah. days of no air conditioning, trying to go to sleep at night. That's when it started to really lose its fun where you're like, because when it happened on Thursday and Friday you're, you, and nobody had to go to work, 
that was cool. When it was going into like late Saturday and Sunday and you thinking about the prospect of maybe going back to work on Monday, having suffered through the weekend with no electricity, that's when it started to get a little bit unfun. Oh, I bet it got rough after a while for sure. The East Village was great though. I mean, the first night they had street parties and music and there was this uh, Turkish restaurant on the corner um, that just continued to serve food uh, and they were taking everything cash. And so it was like this really kind of nice uh, community feeling, I have to say. It was, it was a cool place to be. Yeah, uh, that's a really nice story. I, I've not seen anything like that necessarily. I, in, in terms of rolling brownouts, I worked with this company in Johannesburg a lot last year, and we would be on these Skype video calls, and then all of a sudden everything would just go down because there was just, oh, it was just another brownout. And, and I can imagine how the disruption at first might seem like an annoyance, but like you're saying, maybe there's it's a way that people get together and, and hang out and just learn to, I mean, in a way to slow down and not get so uptight about, Oh, my wireless is down. Oh, I can't post a Snapchat. Yeah. I was in Arkansas just uh, about a month ago and uh, the power went out several times uh, in this rural town that I was in. And it was just like, okay, power's out. We'll just wait. <laughs> it goes back on air conditioner comes back on like, yeah, not a big deal. So we do come to one of my favorite scenes in this whole episode, get the ominous doorbell ring, ding dong. So again, it's like for whom the bell tolls, Angela goes to the door. And once again, when the door uh, is, is being approached and somebody actually bothers to knock, it is almost always somebody in law enforcement so far. And it's Dom DePero with a, a hero and... She just busts on in and tells Angela she knows what she's up to. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, I, I, when Angela was going to the door, I was thinking to myself, no one in the show has peepholes. Like everyone has to open the door <laughs> to find out who's knocking. Like, is this a thing or is this just kind of a, a narrative construct? Like, is this just their way of getting past the looking out the peephole, seeing the person on the other side? You're like, We'll just live in a universe where no one has peepholes. That way everyone has to open their door and has no choice but to really let people in, you know? Yeah, especially given the kind of apartment Angela lives in in Manhattan. I mean, chances are you would have a, a, you know, a much more secure way to get to Angela's front door. You're right. That's pretty funny. And, and it does add to the suspense. And I felt like there were a lot of suspenseful moments. And this is one of them. Do you, do you think... Dominique is a believable character. Do you like how she goes about approaching people? Yeah, I mean, I always think of Columbo every time I, I <laughs> see her character, you know, because she has that totally like folksy slash menacing thing down that Columbo used to do and that characters like Columbo do. And I, and I think that she's going to get killed at some point. So I'm just kind of wondering when the writers are going to use that rabbit. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, she did dream about being drowned and she said she doesn't usually dream. So maybe that's an ominous sign. Yeah. I mean, if White Rose gets his hands on her, maybe he's going to drown her and, uh, you know, tick tock, tick tock. And then pee on her. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that that's 
That's it. That's in the uh, uh, unrated version, <laughs> the DVD extra. Can you imagine what the cut scenes for this series would look like? Because they're going to release these DVDs with cut scenes, right? I'm wondering what these cut scenes might like because I'm sure they're crazy. Oh, I bet. I bet they have a really good time. There was one revelation which you mentioned earlier about how Ollie immediately told the FBI, like, it didn't take more than like 10 seconds. He blew it all about the CD, it all saved. So, like you said, Angela's toast anyway. Then we get back to Cisco's, and then Darlene's listening in all this chatter, and there's a knock at the door. Who do you think it is? Hmm. I, I want to say it's somebody from law enforcement because it seems like they're the only people who knock, but who do you think it is? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think law enforcement. Um, either that or uh, maybe uh, Terrell. I don't know. Uh, Terrell's dead because Elliot's basically admitted to that, right? When he saw the thing, he said, the man I murdered. So he believes that Terrell's dead. I'm so upset about that. <laughs> um, you know, but... We're not certain yet, right? Unless uh, unless we hear that from uh, someone more definitive than Elliot's flawed narrator. Can't really determine that to be true. I mean, maybe that's why Joanna's at Elliot's apartment, because she's like, where did you put my husband? So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any kind of sexual relation there. So it makes me wonder if somehow they've, how they've crossed paths before and what the connection really is. Well, the, it was only that one time where where Elliot was looking for Tyrell that he ran into Joanna on the street. And I did learn afterwards that she said something to him in Danish. And apparently it's, I think she said, if you did anything to him, I'll kill you or something. She said that to Elliot in, in Danish that one time, mm. apparently. But I don't know. Some other people think that the guy she's seeing, she's trying to set him up for Sharon Knoll's murder. Hmm. Well, maybe she's there to kill him. I mean, if she, if that's actually what she said to him, then maybe she's there to kill him. <laughs> Very good point. She didn't look like she was happy to see Elliot, but she was there to see him for sure. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like they were jumping into each other's arms talking about long lost friendships right so well you know all i know is regulators let's dance they gotta dance i like that poster that was in cisco's apartment well your guess is as good as mine where it's heading i mean i guess there are 12 episodes total so this is episode nine and i think it's going to move quickly from here yeah and so i think the thing to think about is where they're going to take things up to the season finale like what kind of cliffhangers are there? Are they in the process of setting up? I'm very much looking forward to seeing how the story is unfolding. Yeah, and uh, really excited to talk about it with you, Margaret. Thanks. Thanks to you, and thanks to all of our listeners who have been subscribing, rating us in iTunes, and just being part of the overall Hello Friend community. And with that in mind, I will talk to you all next week. Bye, Henry. Bye, Margaret. Bye. This is the same edition of the newspaper that the letters and words for the ransom note were cut out of. I'm trying to reconstruct that note. Need any help with your spelling, Lieutenant? I'll tell you what the problem is. We found this newspaper in the motel room. It was sprawled over a chair. It was left there, even though the maid said that she cleaned up the room. Yes, I told you. She probably lied. That's the problem, sir. You see this terrible mess I'm making? There's just no way to cut up this paper and paste together this note without making a mess. I know. 
I tried it last night, my wife and I. Columbo, what's your point? My point is this. This is what you want. If the maid forgot to clean up the room, this is what you get. Then why didn't we find little bits and pieces of paper somewhere? This is what you get. You see the problem? This is what you want.